We are now in the period of Sira. We don't participate in weddings, we don't shave, we don't listen to music. It's considered a time of public mourning. And the Gemara explains to us why it is that we now, some 2,000 years later, are still mourning. And the Gemara tells us, Shnei Masa Elef Zugim, 12,000 pairs of students, Talmidim Hayul Rabbi Kiva, and 24,000 students, the cream of the cream, the best of the best. These were the Talmidim of Rabbi Akiva. And they give us Arantifras. They spread out across the entire land of Eretz Yisrael. V'chulam Mesu Beperek Echad. They all died in a very short time span. It wasn't Corona, it wasn't over a year and something. And when there a very short time, time between Pesach and Shuas, they all died. And the Gemara says, The reason why they died was because they didn't treat each other with honor. The world was desolate. All of the greatest Tamidi Chachamim of the generation, all of the cream of the crop were gone and the world was desolate, until Rabbi Kiva re-established the Masorah, and he began with five Talmidim, he started again, and he re-established the Masorah, and they were the ones who continued the Masorah going till our time period. And this is the time of Sira, and this is why we have now somewhat of a mixed morning stage now. Now, I'd like to share with you an interesting observation. As a nation, we have lived through many, many tragedies. Destructions, war, famines, exile, persecutions, pogroms, annihilations. We are no stranger to suffering. But very few events are significant enough to make it onto the Jewish calendar. And apparently this was. This was so significant that it made it onto the Jewish calendar. And to understand why, just let's look in our day. Rahman al-Latsan, heaven forbid, should ever, shouldn't even say these words, but in our days it would be as if Lakewood, Mir, Chavetz Chaim, all the great yeshivas, all, all died out. The best of the best, the Talmidim of Rebbe Kiva, all died, and it was clearly a shock. It was clearly a sign from Shemayim, and it was so devastating to us as a people that we now today still mourn this, because in fact it was a tremendous, tremendous break in the Masorah, and if it weren't for Rabbi Kiva re-establishing Masorah, hard to know what would have happened. Okay, now, we assume, when we read this, they didn't treat each other with honor, they must have been bores, they must have been rude, vulgar, despicable people. I mean, could you imagine for Hashem to have to kill out 24,000 Tamiri Chachamim? I mean, they must have been spitting and cursing him. Here's the problem. Number one, it doesn't say that they were rude. It doesn't say that they were obnoxious. They didn't push each other. They didn't treat each other with honor. But I'd like to ask a rather perplexing question. And that question is, these were great Tamiri Chachamim. These were great Tamiri Chachamim who were steeped in Torah, completely immersed in Avodah Hashem. And let's focus on one interesting mitzvah. There's a mitzvah called Avas Yisrael. It's an obligation upon every Jew to love a fellow Jew with an avas nefesh, a love, a deep love. And this is not just some extraneous mitzvah. It's a theme that runs throughout the Torah. If you study the mitzvahs and you understand the theme that runs through it, this is a theme 
that runs throughout the Torah. Now that expression, Zeklal Gadol B'Torah, was authored by a certain individual. Who was the individual who wrote that statement? Zu Rebbe Akiva. Rebbe Akiva Amar Ve'Havdel Recha Kamocha, meaning their Rebbe taught this as a principle of a Torah, as a great principle. And I dare say, I'm sure they had chesed committees and they had tremendous <coughs> Avish Yisrael, and I don't believe anywhere that you'll see that they didn't keep the Torah properly. So what does it mean that they were lo nagu kovad They didn't treat each other with kovad. <coughs> clearly they kept the mitzvahs, <coughs> clearly they kept the Torah, and again their Rebbe taught the great principle of Havdarecha what's pshat. So to understand this, I'd like to share with you a question that my Rebbe, the Rosh Zetzal, asked many years ago. Dasakinim brings the Torah's Kanim. It says as follows. If you would like to really grow in interpersonal relations, if you would like to really work on being a true mensch, the Havdarech HaKamocha is wonderful. Loving your neighbor like, your, like yourself is a fine principle. And it says the Torah's Kanim, there's a principle even greater. If you remember this one principle, it will propel you to heights even greater than loving your neighbor like yourself. What's that principle? Bidmus elokim oso That your neighbor, your friend, was made in the image of God. As much as as much as loving your neighbor like yourself will make you a nicer person, a more giving person, a better person, this principle will bring you to even greater heights. Knowing that my friend was created in the image of Hashem, and that will propel me to greater heights. And that's the Dasakinim bringing the Torah's Kanim. And my Rebbe Rishiv asked, this is very difficult to understand. Could you imagine what V'yahavata L'Reacha Kamocha means? Loving another Jew like myself, being concerned for their benefit as I'm concerned for mine, and being very, very interested in what happens to them as much as I am in my own issues? I'll give you an example back from when I was a high school Rebbe. I used to tell the guys as follows. Imagine you're in the dorm, and imagine it's 2 a.m., and your roommate says, Maishi, Maishi, what, what, what? Maishi, what, 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 what? Maishi, I'm thirsty, so get yourself a drink. No, but Maishi, I'm, I'm real tired, I'm real tired. Leave me alone. But again, a few minutes later, Maishi, what? Maishi, what? I'm thirsty, get me a drink, please. Now, in any normal situation, you take a shoe and throw it at the guy, because, like, if you're thirsty... Get out of bed and get yourself a drink. What are you... If we really maximize this principle of Haftarecha Kamocha, and I'm not saying it's for you and I, but I'm saying if a person really reached the heights of this level, then that idea would be, I'm as concerned for his benefit as I am for mine. As much as my pain hurts me, his pain hurts me. As much as his joy brings him happiness, it brings me happiness, we're connected, we're bonded, we're one. How can you tell me there's a principle even greater. How could you be at a higher level of being a mensch, being a person of fine midos, than working on this principle? This sounds like the heights. It's very nice to know that my friend has created an image of Hashem, but how is that going to bring me to greater heights of ben adam lechavero into personal relations? And if you'd like to understand the answer to this question, I have to share with you a a mushal. You have to pick a hero in your world, and it really has to be someone who you respect, you look up to, someone you really you you would love to spend time with. So pick your person. I'll pick, for my sake, I'll pick Rav Chaim Kanievsky. 
So here's the story. <clears throat> Imagine I get a phone call. Rabbi Schaefer, yeah, <clears throat> Rav Chaim's coming to America, and he asked to stay in your house. Oh my goodness, Rav Chaim Kanevsky, the girl of staying in my house. I clean, I scrub, I make sure everything's ready. What's, what does Rishiva eat? What does he need? What does he eat? I'd be there <clears throat> at the airport. I'd be there. What can I do? What can I do? Why? Because this is Rav Chaim Kanevsky. This is the girl of Could you imagine? <clears throat> what the Torah's Khanim is telling us is, if I understood this principle, that that person in front of me has been created in the image of Hashem, if I understood the entire galaxy, the cosmos, everything was worthy to create for that one person alone, that would propel me to greater heights. Why? Because the inordinate respect, the incredible reverence that I would have for that person, it wouldn't be difficult for me to help him. It would be the greatest cover, the greatest honor. You see, Vahavturecha Kamocha is a great idea, and it's a great principle. But at the end of the day, it's very difficult to step out of my own shell. It's very difficult to step out of the confines of my limited body and to really feel another Jew's pain as my own. But if I could train myself to recognize the glory that's due to that person, that person is created in the image of Hashem, the respect due to that person, the reverence due, that would propel me to a greater level of Ben Adam L'Chavera. Why? Because an honored person like him, what could I do? How could I serve you? It would be the greatest cover to me to be able to serve you as if a hero in my world came to town. And I believe that's exactly what the Dasa Kingdom is teaching us. And I believe that this is a principle that requires tremendous understanding. I had a fellow in my shir many years ago who was an excellent Talmud, very intelligent, a masmid, and a mensch. Something happened in the dorm, and it was, little, it was a lot of issues because of it. And the bottom line is, the Rashiva decided to expel him. I went in and I said, it can't, can't do it. I petitioned, I explained, he's a, such a fine fellow, and I explained his midos, and I explained who he was. And, okay. The rest of that day, it seemed like every other person in the yeshiva said to me, you're nuts, you're crazy. He's not good at all. And they were on and on. They couldn't believe I was standing up for this guy. <clears throat> Do you know who he is? Do you know how bad? And it was a tremendous disparity. And it took me a long time to kind of figure it out. You see, this fellow in sheer respected his Rebbe and acted in one particular way. But when he back, went back to his buddies in the dorm, he was kind of like let his guard down and he was a vastly different person. <clears throat> you see, when you respect a person and you want to show to them who you are, and it forces you to rise to the occasion, and because of that respect, it brings you to a very different madrego. And I have one more step that I think requires understanding. Many years ago, I was at a karate competition, and I overheard a conversation. The conversation was, that guy, that guy, he can't punch his way out of a wet paper bag. Now here was the problem. I knew the fellow they were talking about. The fellow was a black belt. He was a trained martial artist. He probably should have his hands registered with the police department. And he was a ruthless kid. He was a killer. And yet these guys were saying he can't punch his way out of a wet paper bag. And why were they saying it? And Because this group of fellows were second degree black belts. And he was only a first degree. And it's true that he was quite skilled as a martial artist but no comparison to this group of people, and to them he was nothing. And I believe that's exactly the answer to the students of Rebbe Kiva. 
You see, I don't believe it's true that they treated each other with dishonor in any sense. And I'm sure they treated each other with tremendous regard, but they made one mistake. They dealt with their friends as if he was a friend. And they forgot that their friends were tremendous Talmudic Chachamim. Their friends were Gedolim. Their friends were people who required tremendous, tremendous honor. They treated their friends as friends, and they forgot who their friends were. My wife's uncle, Rav Shmuel al-Vashalom, was a Talmud of my Rebbe, the Rosh Hashiva. But he wasn't really a Talmud, you see, he was the same age of the Rosh Hashiva. And he once explained to me that something very, very difficult happened to him. My Rebbe, the Rosh Hashiva, became Rosh Hashiva at 24 years of age. His father, Rabbi David, had been the Rosh Hashiva, and the Rosh Hashiva was giving shear at that young age, and then Rabbi David, his father, passed away, and Rabbi Aaron decided that my Rebbe should become the Rosh Hashiva at the age of 24. <clears throat> Uncle Shmiel was good friends and had learned Bechavrusa for many years with the Rosh Hashiva and was a good friend since they were kids. And he said for six months he could not speak to Rosh Hashiva. He couldn't speak to him. Why? Because to speak to him as a friend, they were buddies from the old days. He couldn't speak to him. He's now a Rosh Hashiva. On the other hand, to speak to him like he's a Rosh Hashiva, he couldn't because he's a, he's a friend. So he didn't speak to him for six months. Whether that was the best idea or not, I don't know. But that understanding, he was my friend, but he's worthy of honor and accord because he now occupies a position, he's now a Rosh Hashiva, is a concept that I believe on some level the Talmudim of Rabbi Akiva missed. They didn't push, they didn't shove, they weren't bores, they weren't obnoxious. And I'm sure they acted with very real regard to their friends. But they forgot this one principle. If your friend is a tremendous Talmud Chacham, you can't just treat him like somebody else. You can't just treat him like a friend. And the honor that's due to him is far greater. And the honor that's due to him is something that can't be just dismissed. And I believe that's exactly what this Gemara is saying. And if you look in the Marsha, the Marsha says, L'chosh kol el Torah shel they didn't pay attention to the Kavara Torah of their friends. If my friend is a walking Sefer Torah, I can't just treat him like a buddy. If my friend represents the Torah and has imbibed it and really is on that level, I have to treat him differently. They treated their friends as friends. They've got to treat their friends as if they were the great people that they were. And I believe that was exactly what had happened. And that is exactly why they were, Gomorrah says, the tragedies have occurred. Now, I believe that this concept bears many, many lessons for us. Number one, if you're around people who are Tamiri Chachamim, and especially if they're family members, or if you're close to them, you have to remember there's friends, there's buddies, but wait a minute, this person's a Tamil Chacham. This person is a person worthy of honor. I know a man who even today won't touch the, the coat of a Tamil Chacham. So, in terms of a person's a rav, a person's a reshivat, a person's a rebbe, it's number one very important. But I think there's a much bigger concept for us, much more applicable. And that is because we live today in what I call the generation of disrespect. There is no one today who's respected. Everyone is buddies, everyone's... I remember it was back in the 80s, I was in Eretz Yisrael, and I was on a bus... And Ed and Bob were having a conversation. Hey, Ed, what do you think? Bob, what do you think? Ed, what do you think? Bob, what do you think? The only thing unusual was there was a significant age gap. I could tell one was much older than the other. And after a while, because I was sitting in back of him, I figured out why. The why is because Ed was Bob's father. 
Hey, Ed, Bob, they called each other by first names. We don't want the formality, first names. I'd like to share with you, we live in a time where there's such disrespect. It's beyond description. In the 1950s, when a doctor walked into the room, nurses stood up. Why? He's a man of learning. He's a man of stature. You have to respect him. My grandfather was a simple tailor. Every Sunday when he came to visit, he put on a suit and tie because that's the way you go to visit. Grandparents today run around in shorts and sneakers, t-shirts. We live with in an egalitarian society and we argue with everybody. We argue with our doctors, our lawyers, our rabbis. Ed Koch, back in the 80s, had to start calling the New York City police New York's finest. Why? Because the culture of the 60s and the 70s were to call the cops pigs. And I don't want to get involved in what's happening today, the, in, the incredible lack of sobriety. I can't even begin discussing but the amount of disrespect for authority, disrespect for anyone of stature, disrespect for institutions is beyond description. And I'll give you just a simple example. I used to challenge the guys in my high school share with a tremendous, tremendous muscle lesson. I'd say to them, when you're going home for an out Shabbos, I want you to do as I say, but very, very carefully and do exactly as I say. I said to them, when you're going to be home for Shabbos, your father walks in the room, I want you to stand up. I want you to stand up full height and wait a minute till he passes and only after he passes, sit down. Very, very few guys were able to do it. Very few. Oh, Rabbi, my, he's like the king of England? I mean, like, is it like, yeah, well, come on, that's... Cr-. My friend, it's a halacha in Shulchan Aruch. You're chai if you're obligated to stand up for a father, <clears throat> obligated to stand up for a rebbe. Why? Because that's the Torah's way. You're supposed to treat people with covered, with respect. When your father walks in the room, when your mother walks in the room, you're supposed to stand up to your full height. But we've lost such sense of balance that it's weird, it's strange. Stand up for a person. I don't like it's 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 strange. It's 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 very weird. Okay, but really, that's not my fish to fry today. I have a particular point that I'd like to focus on because I think it's even more applicable. I'd like to share with you two scenarios, two scenes, and I want to ask you the difference between the two scenes. Scene number one, a young man and a young woman are walking down the street. As they're walking, he trips. Oy vey, she says, are you okay? Are you okay? That's scene one. Okay. Scene two, a young man and a young woman are walking down the street. He trips. Klotz! What's wrong with you, she says. What's the difference between scene one and scene two? So, scene one is when they're newly engaged, Chassan and Kala. Scene two is when they're married already three years. And I'd like to share with you, well, that's a joke. It's not such a joke. John Gottman studies marriages, but he studies marriages in a very scientific method. He brings couples into what he calls his lab, and he sits them down on chairs, and he measures everything. He measures their pulse, measures their respiration, measures the amount of sweat that they're generating. And one of the studies that he did was he asked a couple to have a discussion, one with the other, about any topic. Then he asked the husband to step away and asked a different woman to sit down and talk to the wife. And then he switched so that first the couple were talking to each other, 
and then the woman would talk to another man, and then the woman would talk to another woman, then he switched, and this is what he discovered. Invariably, when couples speak to each other, they are far less polite, and far more argumentative, and far less willing to hear the position of their spouse than they are of an utter stranger. When you put two strangers opposite each other, they will be far more polite, and far more willing to accept another's opinion, and far less likely to argue. And this, he says, is true of young marrieds, older marrieds, almost across the board. And I believe that this is a very, very sad but realistic part of being married. You see, one of the things that quickly fades is respect. And it's true, you can't have formality in a marriage, you can't have formality in a house, it doesn't belong there. But if there isn't a real core of respect, and if you don't work on that and keep that in mind, I believe the marriage will suffer very, very severely. And I'd like to give you a little etza. If you want to vastly improve your marriage, I'm a big fan. If you've heard the marriage seminar, if you've certainly read the Ten Really Dumb Mistakes, you know I'm a big fan of romance and going out and, and gifts and love notes. That's a great idea. And yet there's another thing that might have a bigger impact on your marriage. Before you walk in the house, you say to yourself, my wife has been created in the image of Hashem. This person is worthy of honor. This person is worthy of respect. My husband is a person who I have to treat with honor, with respect. Why? Because nothing else is created in the image of Hashem. And he's a person worthy of respect. Now folks, I have to be honest with you. I've heard couples talk to each other in such language that it's incredible. Oh, David, that's the stupidest thing in the world. I shear that's ridiculous. Why do you say this dumb... And they're not having marriage trouble. They're okay. And if you're not careful, very quickly the respect in the relationship goes. And once the respect goes, you before you know it, you become very, very different. You see, respect requires work. and Respect requires focus. And if you don't work on respect in a marriage, I guarantee things are going to devolve. And before you know it, I know a man who's a Talmud Chacham. He is a person whose Eitzah, his advice, is sought out in many, many different situations. And he's a brilliant man until he crosses the threshold of his home. And then you would think, the guy's an idiot. Anything he says, his wife argues with. Anything he says, his wife slugs up. And if someone else says the same thing he's been saying for five minutes, oh, that's a brilliant idea. Now why is it? Is she a mean person? Is she weak? No. The answer is because if you don't work on respect and you don't cognitively think about it, consciously pay attention to it, you start getting into the habits that we get into and before you know it, forgotten are the pleases and the thank yous, and forgotten are the natural social civilities and we argue, we debate, we start becoming very, very difficult with our spouse. Now, I would like to share with you what I call the famous case. It's David and Shira. And David and Shira were uh, a young married couple. And David and Shira were very different. But I'd like to share with you where the differences came out. And David described when they were going out, it was wonderful. And Shira describes when they were going out, it was wonderful. And Shira describes when we were going out, he was, I don't know, he was so full of energy and such a life. And it was always, things are happening and moving. And then we got married, and, and like his ADD is driving me crazy. He forgets everything. He forgets the baby, the, the story. He, forgets, he can't remember a thing. 
David, his tale is also a little bit different. <clears throat> when we were going out, she was always a little bit nervous, you know, and uh, I was always one to calm her down. I was felt like a knight in shining armor to save her. And now she's so anxious, so nervous. Every every Shabbos, it's it's high drama, and she's the queen. And each of them spend the next twenty years, one trying to change the other. And I'd like to share with you, it doesn't work. It doesn't work because almost invariably, <clears throat> what we try to change about our spouse are things that can't be changed. His ADD is inborn. Should he work on it? Should he find coping mechanisms? Absolutely. But at the end of the day, that's a temperament. It's a nature. It's not going to change. Her anxiety is who she is. It's built into the fabric of her essence. Should she work on it? Absolutely. But that is who she is. And the ironic part is that we spend, all of us, every couple, spends an inordinate amount of energy, time, and effort one trying to change the other. And it could be on any issue, but I guarantee there's something that you're trying to change about your spouse, and if only he would, fill in the blank, if only she would, fill in the blank, and everything would be so much better. And we spend a tremendous amount of time trying to change our spouse. As a matter of fact, to borrow a line, we become experts at what our spouse does wrong. Because it's so glaring, and it's so obvious, and it's so clear if he were more punctual, he'd be much more successful. If she would just pay attention to finances, we'd do much better off. And do you know why it's so glaring? Because almost always, it's your strength and your spouse's weakness that you're trying to change in the other. It's If he's always on time, he's going to put that on her despite the fact that she's late. But it's not just that. He's going to see it all the time, it's going to bother him, and it's going to be glaring, it's going to be there, and we become experts at what our spouse does wrong. Now you'll say, okay, so what? That's one of the foibles. What's, what's the big deal? Why is that so significant? So I'd like to share with you why it's so significant. And what does it feel like to be loved? If I were to ask you, what does it feel like to be loved? I'd imagine you'd say it feels like you're, you're accepted, you're approved, you're cherished. Okay, good. What does it feel like to be respected? Right? What does that feel like? So again, I say, I assume you'd say something like appreciated, it's esteemed, accepted, approved. Okay, good. Now how about this? What does it feel like when someone is trying to change you? What it feels like is not accepted, not appreciated, you're not good enough, you are inadequate. And I don't know if you appreciate what I'm saying, because men and women speak different languages. But I guarantee when you try to change your spouse, they hear a message in very, very loud terms. If it's a man and a wife is trying to change him, and what he hears in screaming loud messages, I don't respect you. You're a kid. I'm your boss. I'm in charge. I know better. And you are not worthy of respect. You're not adequate. You're not good enough. And that is a very grating, difficult message for a man to hear and certainly for him to hear and then love his wife. But don't worry about it. When the man tries to change his wife, she also hears a message. But that mega message is not the same. The message that she hears is, you don't cherish me, you don't love me. Men and women have different needs. A man needs respect, the woman needs to be loved. 
but those messages come through in exactly the language that your spouse needs. And if you're going to try to change your spouse, I guarantee you won't succeed, but you will manage to damage the relationship. And the reason why this is very applicable to us is because I think that's exactly what the lesson of the Talmudim of Rabbi Akiva are. You see, they weren't louts. They weren't bores. Chashashal didn't push each other. The Haftal Rech is something they worked on. But they made one simple mistake. In the busyness of life, they treated their friends as friends, which is okay if your friend is a regular guy. But if your friend is a tremendous individual, if your friend is a walking Sefer Torah, you cannot treat him just as a friend. As Uncle Shmiel wouldn't speak to Rashiva because I can't speak to him as a friend, but I can't speak to him as a Rashiva. There's a certain awe, there's a certain reverence that's required. But it requires focus. Because in the busyness of life, we forget it. These are my buddies, my friends. Slap each other on the back, and gone is the respect. And again, in our day and age, it's very, very applicable in all family relations. Because generally, by the way, we behave very well out of the home. I'll share with you a Badchan story. I once heard a Badchan say, what's the greatest tool for Shalom Bayez? He said, the greatest tool for Shalom Bayez is a telephone. Why? You it is, you Bring... Oh, hi, hi, oh, yeah, absolute, no, no problem, honey, no problem, oh, sure, very nice, good thing, okay, bye-bye, back. Why is that? Why is that? Because when we're outside in public, we're polite, we're on guard, we act a certain way. But when we come home, we let our hair down. And certainly in the home, and that means with your children, with your spouse, with anybody that you live with, it requires focus, it requires attention. Nagu covered Zebezet doesn't mean they were bores, doesn't mean they pushed. It means they didn't treat each other with the honor due. And if you want to vastly improve all of your relationships, I think this Torah's condom is essential. <clears throat> Work on loving your neighbor like yourself, it's wonderful. But understanding my friend was created in the image of Hashem, thinking about that, dwelling on that, just understanding that concept, and certainly in close family relationships, <clears throat> whether it be brother and sister, <clears throat> whether it be parent and children, but certainly in a marriage. A marriage is the closest of all relationships, and therefore it's the quickest for the respect to fade. Because we're so used to each other, we're so comfortable with each other, and that's great. But you also have to be on guard. Because one of the tools that bond you as a couple is the respect. And if the respect begins to fade, it's very difficult to know where it ends. And I believe the Tamidim and Rebbe Kiva are a tremendous lesson for us in that regard. And now, I'd like to open the floor to questions, thoughts, observations. They could be on this, I prefer they're on this topic. Um, this wasn't meant to be a marriage schmooze, although it, it's worth speaking about because it's something, especially in our COVID times, couples spent a lot more time together and there were a lot of, a lot of more issues began surfacing. So it, it's worth, worth really working on. Um, and again, I want to make a plug for the, uh, well, first of all, again, for the 10 really dumb mistakes they're very small couples. Make the pre-publication copy. It's not in bookstores yet. It won't be in bookstores for another four or five months, maybe. I don't, I'm not even sure. Uh, but it is available on Amazon, or it's available on the schmooze.com, T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com. There's also the marriage seminar on um, on the schmooze.com. You can listen to that there. Uh, there are quite a number of uh, different uh, things. Um, so let's open the floor to questions now. If you have questions on this topic or any other topic, please uh, feel free. I do have a number of emails that on this topic that were emailed in, 
So I would like to get to those, but I would prefer taking uh, questions first. Um, okay, BP Simon, we didn't hear from you last week. I apologize. So let's let's. You got the floor. Hi. Um, do you do you think that, particularly in the case of couples, that part of what's going on is the like you said, the uncle who didn't speak to the Rashiva for six months? It's like it's hard for us. You know, maybe your spouse is like the the world's biggest rabbit, or biggest, biggest rabbi, or biggest man, your biggest. But there's there's a certain level of, of for lack of extra comfort, that heart it, it makes it difficult to simultaneously view that as respect, to deal with it as respect. Right. That that's I think you said it very well. Makes it difficult. That's why you got to get to work. Makes it difficult. That's why you have to do do this exercise. Next time before you speak to your wife, say to yourself, she was creating the image of Hashem. Worthy to create the entire cosmos, the sun, the moon. Hashem says, I created for one human being. That's my wife. My wife is an incredibly important person. I have to think about. It. I have to do it. if you just consciously. That, that, be... just, that just means like for, treat her like a person. Then to some extent, like treat her like a person at least. You know, you can't treat her like a schmuck. You can treat her like a person, but but that's not really fully taking uh, looking at their own individual capacity, right? I mean, that's just. Um, I hear you're saying, how we all treat our spouse like a person, like you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. Isn't that isn't that um, isn't that f- not so funny? Isn't it's it not so ironic. funny? It's, a, it's, not a, it's not a real laugh. It's By the way, laugh. I want to tell you something. You create the culture of your home. Since the time my kids are little, when my wife would call, I would run. Now, maybe you think my wife is uh, maybe a tyrant, or maybe you think I'm so mocked about Shalom Bay. Uh-uh. I wanted my kids to know that when mommy calls, Abba runs, because you're creating the culture of your home. The way you act towards your spouse is what your kids see. That's what's normal. That's what's acceptable. That's what they learn. You are creating the culture. So besides your marriage, and just in terms of your family, in terms of your children, being no aid covered. Sometimes I'll I'll tell my kids, you know, don't speak to your mother that way. Great. Sometimes I'll press them. I said, don't speak to my wife that way. Good. Excellent. Good. It's not not just a question of their mother. It's you're, you're offending me too. Good, good, excellent. But you're right, it's difficult, and that's one of the challenges. One of the challenges, you want the closeness, you want to have a, you know, you want a re- very close relationship. At the at the same time, there has to be a certain respect, and you have to work on that. And again, especially in our day and age, when no one is respected, and disrespect is out there in every flavor, nuance, in every, in any environment, it's, it's beyond description. So it requires even more focus, I agree. But that I that really I think today the, the Talmud Chaver type relationship that they had, like the here the I think the Shita and the Rizal talks about it and some other right. There was this, the combination you can have someone who's a peer and at the same time you're treating them like a like a like a Chashim Rebbe or right or, right right right. But especially in marriage, it's okay. Good. Okay, Shkayach. Okay. Um, here we go. Avram, you have the floor. Good evening, Rabbi. Good evening. Hi. Hey, um, interesting question is that um, it seems kind of after dealing with other people, isn't there a certain amount that one has to, if one, when as an individual, they go first on certain levels, that they that they can keep that in the balance, and on one hand, you have to treat the other person with respect, but not stomp on themselves and with their own self-respect? Yeah, that sounds like a loaded question that I'm not going to touch. 
<laughs> the answer is yes. In theory, uh, the answer is absolutely. And Ve'avdara and, Kamocha, the Ramban explains, will never reach that level where I'll really love another person like myself. But the Ramban explains what it really means is that I'm happy in his happiness. I feel pain in his pain. I identify with him. I want for him everything that I want for myself. Everything I want for myself, I want for him because I, I love him. It doesn't mean I put his needs before mine, because that really, we're not going to reach. There were tzaddikim in previous generations who reached that level. There was a Lajva Rav, who was a, he was a Hasidic Rebbe, who once wrote a letter. It's incredible. To read it is incredible. He writes, how dare you call me the tzaddik ador? How dare you say it? I still love my children more than I love other Jews. You can't say that about me. Okay, I, so there once were people, we could have a discussion, but we're not there. But for us, the manifestation of the mitzvah is to want the best for the other person, to be with them in their joy, to be with them in their sorrow. We're connected, we're one. I'm deeply concerned for their benefit. I want everything good for them. That's, for us, the manifestation of it. So you're right, we'll never get to the point, we're not supposed to get to the point, your, your life does come first. Um, and so in that sense, I, I agree wholeheartedly. But the respect issue is a whole different layer of behavior. The respect issue is to remember that this person is, as as BP said so well, exactly that point, that like to remember my spouse is a person, to remember that I'm dealing with a person. But really it's much more than a person because it's, you know, it, it's, it's a person who I have such, should have such deep akarasatov to, who I owe so much to, who I want so much to betterment. Obviously, I need to treat them with respect because... Okay, enough said. But you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I'm just curious. Does this get complicated when it gets close to home, like the, the, the family member or spouse or that kind of... Like, so we're going to... I'm staying out of this question. I'm, I'm been around the block often enough to know I'm staying out of this question. <laughs> All right, that's lucha. Okay. Okay. Good night. Good night. Okay. If you have a question, please feel free to raise your hand. Um, I'll uh, let's see. This, this it will talk about. Yeah. Please raise your hand. I have some questions. Here's a question that was emailed in before the year, and I, I would like to deal with it because it's a very difficult question. <clears throat> the question reads as follows: I have a question about relationships that I wish you can help me out by answering. I know we always learn that when someone hurts you that we should understand that this is from Hashem at the own, and the other person is only a shliach. So here is the question. <clears throat> what if a spouse does something extremely painful, something that is a break of trust, as well as something that really made a mess of my life? How can I move past this in a way that doesn't affect the future of the relationship? And despite working in previous mentioned concepts, I still feel it hard to connect in a real meaningful way anymore. That's the question. Okay, now, let me be honest, that is a very difficult situation, and when trust is broken, and it's, it's not an easy, easy situation. And more than anything, time heals, but the attitude that you take also makes a tremendous difference. So let me share with you, at least in theory, the correct attitude. The Chovaz of Ovas explains that when someone ranks me out, when someone insults me, when someone does his best to really, really embarrass me, I'm supposed to turn my eyes heavenward and say, thank you, Hashem, for revealing a few of my many flaws. But why? Because I'm supposed to understand that no pain can be brought to me 
that's not directed by Hashem. No, no human being can help me. No human being can harm me. Hashem guides everything in creation. This person is but a puppet. There's a messenger. He is the messenger. But there's someone speaking into the mic, delivering to me a message. And that message is from Hashem. And explains the Chavaz of Allah, I'm supposed to understand that the reason why I needed to hear that message was for my benefit. Either the pain cleans me up from things I've done wrong, or to teach me, or whatever it may be. And I'm supposed to know that no human being can help me, no human being can harm me. He is but a messenger of Hashem. But there's one more step. When I really understand that, I recognize the benefit I derived from that insult, from that rank out. Why? Because in the world to come, I will feel so much different. I will feel such tremendous joy and that Baruch Hashem, I got rid of whatever that problem that I did, whatever that issue that I needed kapar on. Thank God Hashem meted out a little bit of punishment in this world and now for eternity I don't have to deal with it. When I leave this earth, I'll look back at that moment with such joy, with such happiness. Thank you Hashem for doing that for me. Now the reason why that perspective is very key is because if I really understood that anger doesn't exist. You see, the reason why it's hard to forgive another person is because you hurt me. You harmed me. You did it. But do you understand that that is kfir, that's heresy? If I say you harmed me, I'm pretending that you can control my destiny. I'm pretending that you can harm me, you can help me, and my existence, my well-being is under your control. That's called kfir. It's heresy. It's denying Hashem's involvement in the world. What I have to recognize is that Hashem guides every single activity. No human being can harm me. No human being can help me. When I walk down the street, there's a loose side bubble. People could try to throw stones. They could try to throw... Can't penetrate. There's no loose side bubble, but it's Hashem who's there. And I have to understand that no human being can harm me. What that means is there's no anger. There's no seeking vengeance. There's no revenge. How dare you do that to me? You didn't do anything. You can't do anything. Now, this is the attitude. I, I say it as the attitude because it's very easy to say and very, very difficult to implement. Because again, when someone close to you harms you or hurts you, ouch, it hurts. But the attitude to think about, to dwell on, to really work on is this. When you think about this long enough and you let some time pass, I think you'll be able to hopefully get past it and recognize that they really didn't mess up your life. That exactly what was supposed to happen, happened. Your life is heading down a path exactly as pre-planned, pre-ordained. Most of it was pre-ordained before you were put onto this earth. And when you understand that, you understand no human being can help me, no human being can harm me. I don't feel a need for anger. I don't feel, how could you do this to me? You did nothing. If anything, maybe it's the greatest favor that you did for me. And now in the world to come, I don't have to deal with the, the issue any longer. But recognizing that Hashem guides the world, I think that attitude, after a while, is helpful because, again, it, it'll hopefully bring you to a point where it's simpler and easier to, to really deal with things uh, in that sense. Um, okay, not a tzedekis, I hear. We used to, Grace Tzadik isn't here, but we have not a tzedekis here this evening. Okay, if you have a question, please feel free to raise your hand. Um, Josh has got his hand up. Okay, Josh, you got the floor. I think you do. Can you hear? Yes, I can. Hi. 
what one second, Josh, what page you up to? Uh, we're up to I have to I have to check, but we're we're like a quarter of the way through. All right, okay, quarter way through. All right, you learn it with depth. You really dig in, right? Each page, each word, you dwell on. You think, right? Good, good. Oh yeah, we yeah we definitely uh, we take our time, you know, really dwelling on each part. Okay, that's part of the process. You're right. By the way, you're 100 percent correct. That's exactly good. Excellent. So actually, um, my lady has a question for you. She's been tuning in tonight. Okay. She ask you a question? Please, absolutely. Hi. Hi. Um, but I have to ask your name first, so it's not Josh, so... <laughs> no, my name is Basia. Basia, hi. Okay. Hi. Um, so my question is not exactly related to um, today's topic, but I was uh, going to try to ask it because it might be related maybe in another way, so... Basically, if like a, a family member or anyone for that matter calls me up and would ask me for advice on their issues or issues that they're having with their spouse or in any with anyone, um, how do you like discuss matters without like doing lashamara? Like, let's say my father wants to talk about the issues he has with my mother. Like, how do I do that without? Um, crossing the border. Of- wow. Okay. Uh, wow. Okay. So let me deal with the issue first. In theory, in theory, if a person comes to you for a bene- for a beneficial purpose, it's not lashon hara. Meaning, if I'm asking you for advice, I'm asking you for help. Even though I'm going to tell you things that are detrimental about another person, it's not lashon hara because I'm doing it for the purpose of a benefit. I'm improving the relationship. I want to change things. So that's not. Lushan Hara. So in that sense, I wouldn't worry about the Lushan Hara piece of it. However, let me just say this. I have dealt with at this stage in my career, I'm not a marriage counselor, but I've dealt with hundreds and hundreds of couples. And the one thing I can tell you is don't get involved in family members. My children do not ask me marriage advice. I will not talk to it. I will not discuss it. I don't even, don't go there. The worst person in the world to go to about a marriage issue is a family member. Because they can't help but get embroiled in it. They can't help but... It, it just... It, it doesn't... It doesn't bode well. You see, the ability to sit back, dispassionate, and, and detach, and look at things from an objective standpoint is something that an outsider can do. But once you're in the family, and once you know the dynamics and the personalities... the Listen, you have to be polite, and you have to... But I, I think your best best thing you could do is to say to your father, I, I, I really, I, I beg off, I, I just, I can't be, uh, I just, I don't feel I can be of any help here. I, I don't want to be, um, uh, let me, I mean, let me say that with a grain of, uh, a grain of caution here. <clears throat> Maybe if you want, if there's a particular reason why you think it will be <clears throat> beneficial in one area, maybe we'll discuss it privately because that's what I would say as a general rule of thumb. Don't get involved in any, uh, family situation, especially parents. Uh, but if you really feel that it's an unusual circumstance, maybe we could discuss it. And there are maybe some situations, some <clears throat> conditions that it may not always be true, but as a general rule, I say you stay out of... By the way, as a rule, I would tell you stay out of anybody's marriage. Can I, here, let me be very blunt. <clears throat> I spent... <clears throat> I, let, me, here, let me say it this way. I was an expert on marriage. 
expert. I knew everything that was needed to be known about marriage. And then I got married. And I discovered I know nothing. 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 I knew nothing about this institution called marriage. And it wasn't until 15 years later, I mean, my wife and I, Baruch Hashem, we have a great marriage, and we were, okay, good. But it wasn't until people started coming to me for advice, you know, people who come to the Shmuz, the Talmudim, you know, people who learn by me. And I started having to study the institution of marriage, and study it not just in my own relationship, but in others, and what normal things happen, and and starting to see the patterns. It took years and years and years until I had a certain grip. And I, when I say studied, I read probably every, just about any popular marriage book that's out there, I've read. Um, I can't say everyone, but certainly the, the, the name of the popular ones, I've read them, but I've read a tremendous amount of works by, by Chazal, by the, the rabbis, anything on Shalom Bias. I spoke to countless numbers of, of rabbis and cousin teachers because, I, you know, again, I was involved in this somewhat on an ongoing basis. And I can tell you, marriage is very, very complex. It's not like, you know, you could be a, I'm sorry, you could even be a good psychologist, but that doesn't mean you can deal with the dynamic of a marriage. So my, my advice in general is don't get involved in other people's marriages because in general, unless you really have a tremendous amount of wisdom, unless you really studied the institution, unless you really dealt with many, many couples, it, it's rare that you're going to really be able to give much help, but especially family members. So I, Bachi, I'm, I apologize. I, don't mean, I hope I'm not being too... Um, too strong here, but I, I do feel passionately about not this. All. Not at all. In fact, um, I will mention that every time I do um, somehow uh, put involved in a situation like this, then I always feel like I have to let them know that I'm not a marriage counsel and that I'm still working on my own relationship. I have so much to learn. Like I, I'm not anybody who you can take advice from. Um, and, and yeah, I tend to agree with you. So, yeah. Okay. I, I Great. will have to, um, yeah, maybe talk to you more uh, privately okay. about this. Okay. Josh has my contact information. We could, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk. Okay. A pleasure meeting you. Thank you so much. Okay. You. Very good. Okay. So, thank you. Bye bye. Okay. A couple more questions if we have. Uh, Nana Tzadikis. One second. Is your hand up? Yes. We have the Grace Tzadikis in here tonight, so we'll have the. Nana Tzadikis. Hi. Hello. Thank you for taking my uh, my hand here. Yeah. Um, I have a question, Rabbi. Um, it sounds uh, um, kind of uh, really hard in terms of respect. Uh, it's been really hard for myself when uh, this happens, uh, trying to be respectful to a really, really close relative that doesn't come back himself or herself in a very kind of uh, I don't know uh, the ways of uh, the Torah let's say uh, if you have a family, close family member that um, kind of doesn't speak uh, you know very politely or doesn't dress really you know appropriate or does things that you find that are not really I don't know Okay. Okay. So let me say this. I, I recognize exactly what you're saying, and it's and it's very familiar to me because we're all human beings. But I want to share with you a perspective that I think is very very important to keep in mind. Um, playing judge is a very very dangerous job because 
we human beings aren't that well equipped to do it. And I'll explain to you what I mean. How many decisions have you made since this morning? So I'll bet you hundreds of decisions. Do say that, do do that, have this cup of coffee, not do... So let's say we were to take a video camera and film a day in your life. And we were to scrutinize every action. And we would ask, are you at your top game? Are you doing as much as you can? Are you polite as you should be? Are you doing your best? Are you, can you, could you do? So now here's the problem. If we were to do that for one day, and we'd have one day in your life. And I'm sure we'd find many good things, some not so good things, and we'd have an interesting score. <clears throat> but here's the problem. You didn't live one day. You lived a lot of days. As a matter of fact, uh, decades worth. <clears throat> so t- for me to know, for me to judge you, I have to be able to go back over every one of your days and know exactly what was happening, what you did and what you didn't do. But here's the next difficulty. Next difficulty is I don't know your temperament. I don't know your nature. I don't know your upbringing. I don't know your background. I don't know what was occurring. And the Gemara tells us one person could do an act and it could be a thousand times more valuable than another person's act because for him it was a tremendous challenge, whereas the other person was easy. I don't know a person's challenges. I don't know the weight that you carry. I don't know your background. I don't know so many things. So number one, I would have to be able to count up millions and millions and millions of actions. Number two, I would have to have a tremendous insight into your temperament, your nature, your ability, your capacity. Number three, I would have to know your entire background from the time you were born, brought up, how your parents treated you, everything that happened to you, and so I'd understand a full... Okay, now after I did that, then I'd have to look at my own life and do the same. So here's the problem. Anytime we judge, we are playing a very difficult game. We are playing a game called playing God. You see, Hashem is very, very good at doing what I just described. Hashem is our creator, was there since I was born, created my nature, my temperament, knows exactly my capacity, was with me every moment, knows whether I did right or didn't wrong, I could have done better or couldn't, was with me throughout, and Hashem was with you. So Hashem can judge human beings. But when we take on a role that is well, well above our pay scale, it ain't so smart because we're not so well equipped to do it. Now, don't get me wrong. It's natural. We all do it. You know, we judge. He's good. He's not good. She's okay. She's not okay. What I'm saying to you is it's very, very difficult to judge. Well, no. It's very easy to judge. It's almost near It's near impossible to judge fairly, to know who they are, where they're coming from, what it means. So what can I tell you? I guess that's where, you know, the Torah says, B'tzedek tish b'ramitecha, judge your neighbor fairly, and I believe there is no way to judge fairly, so you're a lot better off not judging. So, again, I'm not saying it's easy, because I recognize what, what, you're, what you're expressing, and I, I'm also a human being. But I am saying the work is to work on not being judgmental, because I don't know, and I can't measure. And if I could, again, I'd have a different position, and it wouldn't be just being a human being. You know what I'm saying? Okay, I'm sorry. I hope I wasn't too. Uh, I got to ask apologies again tonight. I'm, I'm being too. Uh, maybe I had too much coffee this morning or something. I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Can I ask one more question? Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, please. Um, uh, how are you supposed to like um, um, react when you're close to a person that's constantly uh, and again trying to very very hard not to judge this person, but I, I know two people uh, currently in my life that uh, I understand that they are not going through easy 
um, you know, of parts of their lifestyle. Um, one being, uh, you know, an older single, and the other one being married for over, I don't know, 10 years, more than 10 years without having kids. And I do definitely understand that their pain is really big in terms of what they are experiencing. But I'm having really, really, really hard time, kind of like this long-term uh, listening of, uh, you know, they all the time are looking at other peers and comparing themselves to them and, and saying out loud, uh, being very jealous about, you know, for example, why this person got pregnant and not me, and this person is so young, and like all the time there, or the other per the other person who's single, he's like, oh, why this friend uh, got married and not me, and saying it out loud, everything that, like all their frustration of looking at their neighbors and at their peers and, and saying out loud, why they get it good and I don't. And I'm all the time listening to this and I feel like it's very toxic. And I, I really don't know if I'm being really selfish by, by saying that. And uh, sometimes if it's a, a, a close relative or if somebody that be, is part of a group that you belong to, it's really kind of, I don't know if it's the right attitude to have. Okay, so let me... Get away from that. Basically. Okay. So let me be very candid. I'm not again. I'm also not saying this is easy, but I want to share with you a perspective that may make it a lot easier for you. Do you understand the chesed you're doing for this person by lending an ear? Do you know? I'll make it. I'll make it more clear. Do you know there are many times, many times when I say to my wife, "I'm now going to spend two hours. I'm going to do nothing for the next two hours other than listen, and I'm going to say nothing." But that is exactly the greatest chesed I could do for this person. And a person will go on and on, and, and I just listen, and I listen, and I listen. Now, why am I wasting my time? I'm gaining nothing. I'm not saying anything. But the answer is, many times, just being that ear, to just listen, to hear, is a tremendous... You're right, when people go through... I'm not saying it's easy, and if you find you're getting depressed, right, we have to discuss it, whatever. But, but you are doing, hopefully you're doing, a tremendous chesed being there for them, because it is... You know, being an older single is not an easy situation. And not having children when everyone else has kids and there's such pressure and there's such a desire, it's, it's, it's not easy. So being there for the person, you know, if you recognize the chesed you're doing for them, what you're doing for them is helping them in the most positive way. It's pure chesed. That's exactly what it is. Again, it's tough. I'm not saying it's easy because, again, when you hear it again and again, as you say, it becomes toxic. But I think focusing on that may, may help a little bit. All right, I hope hope it goes well. Okay, I want to thank everyone for joining. Um, I want to mention again, if you'd like the 10 Really Dumb Mistakes, the pre-publication copy is available on the schmooze.com, T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com, uh, or you can get it on Amazon. And I wish you much hatzlacha and a good Shabbos. We'll see you next week. Thank you.